Well, welcome. Uh, we are in the book of Acts. Today we're going to look at chapter 17. Uh, in the book of Acts, I did not write down that page number, but I think it's somewhere around 630-something. You'll have to tell me. I'm sorry. Uh, if you're using the Bible in front of you, I can't remember the page number. So when, if you, when you find it, you can yell it out if you want. Acts, Acts chapter 17 is where we'll be today. 639? Thank you. Did I say 630? It was around there? Is that what I said? All right. Good. Just want to, want to make sure I, I still know what I'm talking about. So, um, You know, one thing that stands out to me in the story of the church, which is the book of Acts, by the way, that it's, it's called the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. So it's, it's the history, the birth, and the movement of the church. It's a history book. So uh, if you are a historian or someone who, who enjoys history, enjoys the, you know, like you're, you're doing something now, but history dictates how we got there. If you're someone that enjoys that or appreciates that, then uh, the book of Acts is a good place to camp out for a while because it's the story of the church. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples that it would be better for me to leave you. You imagine that? You imagine being the 11 guys standing around as Jesus is about to leave them and he looks at them and says, listen guys, it's better for you if I leave. You imagine them just saying, yeah, we, we trust you. Your ways are not our own, like we just sang. Sure, Jesus, we, would, we obviously believe that right out of the gate, that it's better for you not to be with us. What do you mean it's better? How could it possibly be better that you're not with us? You know, those kind of thoughts probably rambling through their heads. And they're sitting in this room and they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Wait. How many of you are good at waiting? Anyone really good at waiting? Of course you are, Clapper. So good at, at waiting. I'm not great at waiting. So how many of you have been in line at Chick-fil-A for your food and the guy, the, the, like the, the five people that ordered after you get their food before you? In that scenario, are you good at waiting? Now you're like, they got, they got here like 10 minutes after me. That's not true. We always exaggerate the numbers, but still, we're not good at waiting. So these apostles and the followers of Jesus, perhaps around 120 people, are gathered together and, and they're praying and they're waiting. And they're waiting because Jesus told them that, that the one who comes after me is better. And they had no idea what that meant. So they're waiting. And Acts picks up at Jesus telling them what they're supposed to do and that what they're waiting for will be better. And he doesn't take a whole lot of time. It's not like they have to wait, you know, 400 years like the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's just a matter of days. But as they're waiting, they're praying. And in blows the rushing wind and the Holy Spirit and indwells them and they speak in their own dialects and languages and that's where the church gets birth, right? If you remember, that's how the whole story of the book of Acts starts. 
So that, that's where it starts, and it gets the whole way through now. And one thing that hopefully we've noticed is that as the gospel increases, almost at the same level of the gospel increasing is the level of persecution increasing. So as the gospel grows and expands, the people who don't want the gospel to grow and expand are trying to keep pace with the expansion of the good news of Jesus. So songs like we sang this morning are so foundational for us to not just sing with our mouths, but to lock into our hearts. For us to say, we trust you, your ways are greater than our own. This we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. But by our own self-admission, we're all pretty terrible at waiting. So as we wait, what are we doing? It's a question for us to answer. That's a question that we see the followers of Jesus answering with their behavior. Would you agree that you answer questions better with your behavior than your words? And that's what the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus are doing. They're not just feeding lip service to the message of Jesus. They're living it. And their lives matched up with the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, not just words, but actions and deeds, is what's moving the gospel in huge, fast waves. And persecutions come along right side it. So we've seen this happen over and over and over again. We've seen arguments come up in the church. We've seen people try to settle them and be successful at settling them. We've seen people die because of the gospel, people like Stephen. We've seen people beaten to the point where people thought they were dead, like Paul. And that's not the first time that's going to happen to him, by the way. We've seen imprisonment. We've seen beatings. And we are going to continue to see it. It's in there on purpose. Because I want you to know something foundationally true. It's a promise that Jesus made us. He said things like, the world will hate you because of me. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know what that sentence says to us? Just wait. Just wait. This is not a waiting that sits and says, you know, I'm in line for this event, and when they open the doors, I'll be the first one in. It's not that kind of waiting. It's an active waiting. It's the kind of waiting when you're in a job and you've been promised the promotion. You can't sit on your hands and wait for the new job to start. You continue to do the job you have until the promotion is given to you, right? You're still waiting for something, but you're not sitting still while you're waiting for it. You have to continue to do the work while you're waiting for this. Am I right? Does that make sense? That's the kind of waiting we see the apostles have. It's an active waiting. They're waiting for something greater. They got the Holy Spirit, but now they know that Jesus, the full, complete picture of Jesus, that he's coming back. And every one of the apostles, I believe, believed that there was a good chance they were going to live to see it. I don't know if Paul ever in his mind conceptualized that thousands of years after these were written, these, these letters that he wrote, these messages that he was preaching, we would be sitting here in a country he didn't even know existed, 
reading and, and preaching through and teaching his letters and his actions and his sermons. I don't think he had a concept for that. But he was actively waiting for the next thing. And the next thing was Jesus was going to come back and fix all the brokenness. And in the meantime, the apostles' job, the followers of Jesus' job, our job is to go into the world and tell the story of what Jesus did in me. Your story is powerful. And in your sphere of influence, your story is more powerful than mine. I can't tell your story better than you can. Evangelism is simple when we strip it down to that. You are to tell people the story of what Jesus did in your life. That's what we see the apostles do. It's an active waiting, waiting for something coming. We have the promotion, if you will, of, of being in the presence of God physically for all eternity. The good news of Jesus promises that we are sitting at the right hand of the Father, being full heirs to the treasures of heaven. That's our future. We are waiting for that. But we don't want to be the wicked servant that sits on his hands and does nothing, just waiting for the master to return. We want to be active in our waiting. Now, I say all that to say that's what leads us up to what's happening here. We see persecution come, and that does not slow down the gospel. It actually increases the gospel. Every time we see persecution, we see more people come to know Jesus. It's amazing. Every time we see the followers of Jesus push through persecution and true faith in God, we see more people come to know Jesus. It's crazy. That's where we pick up the story in Acts 17. If you remember, we left off with Lydia. Lydia was a, a well-known lady in society that sold purple goods. She was wealthy. We know that because purple goods were expensive to come by, and royalty bought them. So she could pretty much charge whatever price she wanted. Coming by the die was hard. She probably was a prominent member of society. She comes come just to know Jesus, and she automatically starts using what she has for the kingdom. At the end, we see them leaving town after, after the release from prison, the, the miraculous escape. We see them leaving town. But before they leave town, it says that they went and visited Lydia. It gives us this piece that, A, ladies, you are pivotally important to the gospel moving forward. This is not a man's game. Ladies, you are pivotally important to the gospel moving forward. We're going to see that again, by the way, in Acts 17. So they leave Lydia's place after they have been, if you look at verse 40, that's the last verse in chapter 16. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, period. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They went to Lydia's and that's where the church is gathered. They say, look, guys, we're OK. We're out of prison. Life is good. Jesus is still on the throne. We have work to do. Let's get out there and do it. If, if we're not hanging our heads and we were the ones that just got beat with sticks, then you have no excuse. Come on, let's get out there and get the work done. That's what they're saying. And then they leave. That's where we pick up verse uh, 1 in chapter 17. So follow along with me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and, provo and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is 
the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and listen, and not a few of the leading women. I don't know why Luke chooses to say it that way, or we've chosen to interpret it that way, but not a few means many and many. <laughs> and it's not just that he's making a caveat that there, were, that, this, that there were ladies that came to know Jesus. It was that they were prominent leaders in society. The society was not male-centric. The American church has done that. That wasn't the Bible. So as this message of Jesus is going out, this is for men and women alike. We have one guy following another guy as he does his missions work. So who do you hear most about? The guy, because that's who he's spending all his time with. It's not because that's the way it's always supposed to be. It's just because that's who's writing the story and that's who he's writing it about. So that's what we see happen. We see him move into this next town. He spends at least three weeks going to the synagogue and preaching Jesus. And what does it say that he's doing? This is important. We're going to get into this in a second. Does it say that he preached? Look at verse 2. He went in for three Sabbath days consecutively. Did he preach? Did he teach? Did he argue? What did he do? He reasoned with them. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Now look at verse 5. I want you to remember Lydia. Lydia, prominent member of society. She comes to know Jesus, and automatically she says, I have a place big enough for us to gather. And she uses that as a hospitable gift, and her house, her home, her homestead, whatever it is, becomes the the place of gathering. There is no church building. You don't walk into, if you don't see the letter to the church in Thessalonica and it's this white building with a steeple and Paul writes them a letter. That's not what it is. He's writing to all the followers of Jesus in Thessalonica when he writes that letter. So here we are in Thessalonica. The synagogue is there. Paul goes in. He's he is, he is reasoning with them in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous... And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Now here, we're introduced to a new character, Jason. We don't know much about him. What we do know is he falls in the same ilk as someone like Lydia. He has influence. He has a place. This is where the church is gathering. When they're looking for the followers of Jesus, they know where to find them because the followers of Jesus are gathered They're not gathered at the white building with the steeple. They're not gathered at the big building with the cross on the front. They're gathered at someone's house. And enough of them have been telling the story of Jesus and what Jesus has done in and through them and for them. Enough of them have been doing that in Thessalonica and in these other towns that whenever the authorities want to find where the followers of Jesus are, they automatically know to go to Jason's house. Doesn't that say something? It says that, that's, that, that there was a natural propensity and desire to be around like-minded people to further a, a message. That's the church. 
In Hebrews, when it says, don't forsake the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, that's what it's referring to. When the people of God understand the message of God and they want to get that message out to society and they understand that society is not always going to respond positively to it, they want to be around like-minded people so they can pray, so they can bolster their confidence so that whenever they leave and go out, they know they're not doing it alone, even if in the moment of persecution they're standing by themselves. So the church exists for that. The church is gathering at Jason's house. Now, I want you to know something. The population of Thessalonica at the time is around 200,000 people. This is not a small town. This is not walking into a town with 200 people in it. There's 200,000 people living in this area right now. So when they go find the people that are prone to getting mad about stuff, when they find the people that they can get to the rally and they know they'll get them to yell and scream about whatever they plant in their heads, they can cause quite a scene. And so they gather up these people. Do you, you see what it says in verse 5? Taking some wicked men of the rabble. You ever hear that term, rabble rouser? You're a rabble rouser? That's old language. My grandmother used to call me a rabble rouser sometimes. Right after she told me to keep my feet off the Davenport. I didn't even know what a Davenport was. The rabble was a group of unsavory characters, essentially. The rabble was, if you wanted to cause up, if you wanted to stir up trouble, you knew where to go. You know people of the rabble, right? Some of you might be people of the rabble, I'm just saying. And they formed a mob based on these people that were easily impressionable. They get them excited and riled up over something, and they form a mob. And they set the city, 200,000 people, up in an uproar. And once they have that, they go straight to Jason's house. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, verse 6, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting. Uh, this is hilarious to me. Listen to the charges that they bring up against these guys. This is what they're shouting. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. That's the charges they're bringing against the followers of Jesus. I can picture Jason and all the brothers standing there going, yep, that's about it. That sums it up. I can see them thinking, I don't know what the problem is. I don't see, I don't see what the problem is, right? We live in a political climate where this kind of stuff happens all the time. People shout something, and they're shouting it, and they're angry about something. When you hear them shout about something, all they're shouting about is something you already know happened. And you stand by and you try to look at it objectively and say, yeah, why are you so angry? They're angry because what they're stating is something they have been told should make them angry. And they're impressionable enough to believe it. And in the meantime, you have this other group of people that are saying the way of Jesus is a way of peace. It's by bringing people back in the right relationship with Jesus. And yeah, Caesar's not as authoritative as, as Jesus is. Caesar doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. 
We were unapologetic about it. Yeah, when Paul and Silas got here, we gave them a place to sleep. Those are the charges. Here we go. Let, let's rattle them out. Well, the first charge, they, they, these men have, who have turned the world upside down. I love that. I love that. I pray that becomes true verbiage in this area of Journey Church. That church turned this place upside down. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? The message of Jesus is rattling cages, and it's turning society upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. How dare they? That's the first charge. The second charge is that they provided hospitality to Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas were not being attacked. They were not being hunted. They were not being persecuted. They were not providing them with a safe place to hide. They were giving them a place to sleep and a hot meal, and they were providing them with hospitality. These men were not hunting Paul and Silas. There wasn't a bounty on their head. They weren't wanted dead or alive. They were just bringing the message of Jesus, and Jason and the other brothers say, yeah. And the third is that they were teaching that a ruler named Jesus was greater than Caesar. If I ever have to stand before the authorities, and those are the three charges brought against me, I hope I just say, amen. This man has turned the world upside down with this message of Jesus and provides hospitality to people who love Jesus. And he says that the President of the United States isn't near as powerful as Jesus in our context. I would hope that our collective response to that would be guilty. Guilty. So, as the story progresses, in verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Isn't that hilarious? It might not seem hilarious, but let's break that down a little bit. Bogus charges that they can't do anything for. There's no law that exists that says what these guys are doing is wrong, except for the bogus charge about Caesar. They could probably do something with that one. They're not housing criminals. They're just providing hospitality. They have a radical message that upset the wrong people and made them mad and got the mob started. So now the authorities, whether they want to or not, are forced to respond to this somehow because you've just riled up a pretty big section of 200,000 people and they're bringing them to your door as the authorities. And you can't say, you guys are all morons. Take off your Make America Great Again hats and go somewhere else. They have to respond to the problem. They have to respond to this and what's happening. They have to have some kind of response. And the response is they don't really have anything to say. They don't really have anything that they can do. So they find somewhere in here, it implies that Jason has money and he has wealth. And so they drag them. They try to get something to stick, and Jason and the brothers pay a hefty fine for them, and then they let them go. That's what happens. So in verse 10, what we see happen is the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
This is a pretty neat place. These people are hungry for something, and they're inquisitive people, and we should model some of their behavior. In verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They're seeing that this mob wants, they want blood. They're out for blood, right? So they're taking Paul and Silas and saying, we want the message to continue. So Paul and Silas, by cover of night, we want you to go to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue. That's what they normally did, right? Verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Listen to this. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So as Paul is teaching from the book of the law, as Paul is expounding on the book of the law, they're following along with him and they're checking to make sure he's right. They're not just hearing this message and saying, well, he said it pretty convincingly, so it must be true. That's the exact opposite of the crowd that they just riled up in the last town. The crowd in the last town got riled up because they, they, they could be told something persuasively, and they said, oh yeah, we're mad about that too. We don't need all the information. We don't need to check the facts. We just need, yeah, we're angry. What do you want us to do? Oh, you want us to drag him to court? Sure, we'll do that. We're angry. So that the Paul goes in with this message of peace, the message of Jesus, and these Bereans hear it, and they say, okay, where does it say that? It's like me coming up here and not having this book in front of me and saying that in Acts 17 it says, and everyone in the room saying, okay, and never picking up the Bible to make sure that's what it actually says. Never checking to see if what's being taught from the Word of God, whether you watch it online or, or hear it in a podcast or heard in a sermon live or online or on TV or whatever, we should be like the Bereans. We should be opening the Word of God for ourselves and checking to see if what we're hearing is correct. There are a lot of people out there that say nice and good things, but they don't match up with the message of Jesus that exists in the Bible. The Bereans hear Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, like we would say, why do you have to fact check them? These Jews are hearing about all of the trouble that follows these guys. There's not just people adopting this message of life. There's people that hate it. We're on, this, we're on the good side. So we have trouble deciphering the reality of the Bereans here. The Bereans are hearing this message for the first time. And they're also hearing of mobs trying to kill these guys. So they don't automatically want to say, yeah, you're right, that sounds good. But they automatically also don't want to say, no, you're wrong. They say, okay, this is what you've said. This is your message. We're going to daily track you. In what you're saying, we're going to follow along with you. And we're going to make sure that you're, what you're telling is true. I think that's very inspiring, by the way. Look at what happens after this. In verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. Just stop there for a second. When we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves what? What's it? What's it there for? It says that 
the Bereans would hear the word with eagerness and then check to make sure that it was accurate and read along and study it for themselves. And because of that, mixed with a faithful message, matched up with a faithful life, they believed. It wasn't just a message. It wasn't just a faithful messenger. It was that they themselves took the time to be in the word for themselves to know the word of God that was being taught, to know the message of God that was being taught. They wanted to know, where's your source for this information? We want to check for ourselves. And Paul could unapologetically point them in that direction because he wasn't making any of it up. His response wasn't, I don't remember where I got that. Let me check. I'll get back to you on Tuesday. Hopefully they forget. No, his source was right there. And he said, oh, here it is. Great question. I love that you're reading. Yeah, go ahead, do it. And many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Do you see that language coming up more and more, by the way? Luke is being very purposeful about this. This isn't just a, a bunch of men gathered together and then taking it home to their wives who have been dressed with their pearls on making food for word all day. These are women that are active participants in hearing the message. They're, be, they're there. They're present. They're hearing it. They're digesting it. They're part of society. They are active participants in the culture. They have employment and they have, they have, they have influence. And when the people of, uh, of this town are gathered together, it's men and women alike, all of influential position, and they're all hearing this at the same time, and they're studying together. And they come to Christ as well. But when the Jews, verse 13, from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So as the, the, the angry mob, it keeps saying Jews. I don't want to sound anti-Semitic. That's not what the tone is. They say Jews because it's the followers of the law. When Luke wrote this, it would have made perfect sense to say the difference between Jew and Gentile. In our culture, that's not necessarily the case. These are, these are cultural Jews who live under the law, and they're mad because their way of life is being undermined. Their way of life. If they obey the rules, they're better than you. So they have an elite status in society, and all of a sudden this message of Jesus comes in and undermines that, and they don't like it. So now they hear, they, they, Paul left, they don't know where he went, cover of darkness, he ends up in Berea, they don't know that, but all of a sudden, all of these Greek men and women are coming to know Christ, and it's, that message is getting back to these angry mob of law-following Jewish people, and they follow that, that mob, moves towards where they know now where Paul is. And in a strategic move, uh, those who conducted Paul or took care of Paul brought him as far as Athens. Then they left Silas and Timothy there. Part of the reason why I believe that happened is because Paul wanted to make sure that whenever he got to Athens, it wasn't like he was going to step off and then get on the ground and people were just going to murder him there and that would be the end of it. And then if Silas and Timothy were with them, it would have happened to them too. So he gets to Athens, essentially lets them know that it's safe. And that's the end of verse 15. They received the command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible and they departed. 
Now look at verse 16. But before that, I, I want to I cover something, and I, I think it's so, so important for us to look at. Paul goes into the synagogue and he teaches. He teaches, lives out, and, and uh, he teaches the Word of God. He ex- he's experienced the Word of God and the person of Jesus, and he teaches it and lives it out and models it. The gospel is clearly proclaimed and lived out. And then as people get into the scriptures, they find that this gospel message is true. It's proven to be true. And then out of that being proven to be true, people believed. Discover, disciple, deliver. These people discovered truth. They were discipled in the truth. They read the word for themselves. They asked questions about the word. They interacted with the word. They believed. And then they were the ones taking the message out to the people that they lived with. We will see the mission of our church, Journey Church, play out in Scripture time and time and time again. But this is one of those instances. So Paul goes ahead, most likely a a strategic move. And in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, because he knows they're on their way, At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Again, what's he say he does? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What we do know about Athens culture at this time is that in Athens, the culture was that of a philosophical culture. It was an education center. It was a place where philosophers would sit around and philosophize. It was a real exciting place. So uh, it was known for philosophy. It was known for, uh, it was known for uh, reason. And so when Paul gets into this town, he, he, he's annoyed Luke tells us that when Paul is waiting for them, he looks around and in his spirit, he's provoked because everywhere he looks in this city, there's idols everywhere. There are idols everywhere. False things that are being worshipped and, and, and things that are being adorned. And it's not Jesus. And it, man, it just bothers him. But he doesn't stand up and yell at people. He doesn't stand up on a soapbox with a megaphone and tell everyone how wrong they are. He reasons with them. Why do you think he chooses to reason with the philosophical society? Because that's how they communicate with one another. And if you're going to get a philosopher to change his philosophy, you have to reason with him or her. So Paul does this everywhere he goes. He does it in the synagogue. He does it in the marketplace. He does it with the devout persons that are asking questions. And he does that Every day. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Right? That's a softball. You keep preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We want to know what this means. Do you think you would have had that audience if he had just started yelling at people and told them how stupid they were? No. 
He took the time to know the culture he was in. And that alone created an opportunity for him to talk to them at their level in a way that made sense to them. It's beautiful. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Meaning they would sit together and philosophize all the time. They loved new information. They loved talking about new information. They loved waxing eloquent on new philosophies. So this was life-giving to them. This guy's got a message we haven't heard before. Let's sit down and give him an audience. So verse 22. We're going to read this and then be done. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown? This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is a great, great synopsis of the gospel. And Paul preaches this message to people and uses specific examples in their culture that make sense to them. He says, I was even walking through your town, and I saw that you have an idol that you worship and bow down to, and that that altar is given to an unknown God, like you're covering all your bases here. But you yourself are even saying that you worship a God that cannot and is not known. I tell you that the God that I worship, the God that I preach on, the God that I'm pointing people towards is very known and wants to be known. Then he goes into their culture again and he talks about dwelling place. He talks about God and Jesus being that. He talks about him creating that for us and that undermines the temple mindset that they've built these altars and temples to false gods. He talks in verse 29, we, not, we, we shouldn't think of divine beings like gold or silver or stone or formed by the art and imagination of man. So there was a time whenever people did this all the time and God overlooked it, but that's not us anymore. God does not overlook our idolatry anymore because he has given us Jesus. That's his message. Now listen to verse 32 to 34, because this is where I want to hang it up. 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius and Arapagate and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay, let's wrap this up. What we see Paul do is active waiting. He knows because he's preaching that someday the righteous judge will come back to make all things right again and all things new. And in the meantime, his job, his calling is to go into all the world and make disciples. And you can't make disciples if you don't have a message. So he preaches a message and he lives that message out. Through through, uh, being attacked, through threats, through being abused, through being imprisoned, through being almost murdered, he fights through all of that because his message, if he has breath in his lungs, the work to do is to tell more people the message of Jesus. Paul's life says, if I'm not dead, I'm doing the work of Jesus. If there's breath in my lungs, I am making disciples. That's the message of a Christ follower. And he preaches an amazing message. And at the end of that message, he got mocked. Some people heard a really good message. And they walked away and were like, that's bunk. Some people heard him and said, I want to hear some more about this Jesus. I'm not ready to jump on that yet, but you're, you're making sense and it's causing me to think and I have some things I want, to, I, want to hear, I want to hear more. And some heard the message and believed and followed. And we get their names because if you read other historical books, you see that these people were active in sharing their faith and being part of the church. Here's my point in saying all of that. Our reason for being, if we have Jesus in us, if we are indwelled with the Spirit of the living God, is to live this out and take this message into a world that needs it. That's our job. Our job is to be about making disciples, telling people the message of Jesus and then walking with them as they, as they figure out who Jesus is. That's what we should be about. But the results, those aren't our responsibility. There are many of us here today that probably feel guilty because you've shared Christ with someone several times and they just don't get it. And then you walk away from this conversation and you tell yourself you must be doing something wrong. If I'd have just used the right tract, or if I would have said the right thing, or if I would have prayed the right prayer, then I would have, I would have been able to see them pray to receive Jesus. I asked them if they wanted to repeat after me the prayer, and they said no. I asked them if they wanted the tract, and they said no. I must be terrible at evangelism. But Jesus never said, go into all the world and pray with people to receive Jesus, and then Talk about how many people raised their hands at the altar call and that you prayed with to receive Christ. He said, go and be faithful with the message and make disciples. If someone does come to know Christ, you put your arm around them. You recalibrate your life around theirs. 
for their sake to know Jesus deeper. That's what making disciples looks like. And the results are not our responsibility because here's Paul preaching an amazing message, living this out day in and day out, a great hero of the faith. And at the end of his message, people make fun of him. They mock him. Some of them say, I'm curious. I want to hear it again. And some of them follow the message. That's the reality. Not everybody that we, that we talk to about Jesus is going to take the message. But that shouldn't slow down our desire to teach the message. Because in, verse, in chapter 18, right away, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He didn't sit down and say, Oh, man, those people that mocked me, I wonder what I can say tomorrow to get them to believe in Jesus. He said, hopefully, these followers of Jesus that came to know Christ in this town, they stay, and they're able to make disciples here. And he was making disciples along the way, but the results weren't up to Paul. So are we actively waiting? Are we, are we living this out? If the gospel has done work in and in you, is it, are you allowing it to do the work through you? Is the heartbeat of your life looking for opportunities to invest the message of Jesus into the people that you come into contact with, to delivering the gospel. Is that what your heartbeat is for? Or do you only think about it on Sundays or at certain times of the week? If we're going to be the people of God, we need to live like the people of God. And we need to boldly approach the throne of God. We need to have boldness to know that he gave us a message. He gave us authority. He gave us a calling. And he put us right here, right now, for other people to hear it. God, thank you for your message. Thank you for the hope that we get from it. Thank you for the grace that comes in the moments when we might not get it right. Thank you that we can, we, can, we can identify with Paul when he looks around and is annoyed by what he sees. But thank you that your spirit was in him and guided him to know his audience and speak words that made sense to them, to love his, the community that he was in enough to, to capture their heart and attention with the message of who you are. That he didn't box it up the same way in every town. He contextualized the gospel for where he was. And I thank you for that inspiration. But I thank you that he was willing to accept that the results are up to you, not up to us. We have work to do. And I pray that you inspire our hearts to be faithful to you in making disciples. To help people discover the same gospel that we have had the awesome privilege of discovering. And we get discipled in it and we disciple others in it. And then we take it out and we deliver it to the people we do life with that we run into. May we have boldness to approach your throne because you've said that we belong there. And thank you for your son. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for the father. May you be honored and glorified in what we say and do.